If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 42. Matthew 5, verses 33 through 42. We continue on in our study of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 42. On October 2nd, 1789, a joint House and Senate Conference Committee came together to settle disagreements and pare down 17 different amendments, uh, and they pared it down to 12 by December 15th, 1791. Uh, Three-fourths of the states had ratified 10 of those amendments, which are now known as the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights is the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, and it spells out Americans' rights in relation to their government. It guarantees civil rights and liberties to the individual, like freedom of speech and press and religion. It sets rules for due process of law and reserves all powers not delegated to the federal government, to the people, or to the states. And it specifies that the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be consumed, construed or deny uh, or disparage others retained by the people. Uh, the last couple of weeks, we've seen Jesus take the, these laws that the Pharisees and the scribes thought they were keeping and show them that they were far from it. Uh, this week, we're going to see him doing something similar. He'll take what they actually thought were rights and show them how far they are from the character of God himself. Remember, we've learned that the way we view the law actually exposes not just our view of the law, but of God himself. So what does the law tell us about God's character? So far, we've seen that God isn't merely concerned with externals. He cares about our hearts. We've seen that over and over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount. But we've seen that each of us has broken at least the sixth and the seventh commandments, if not all of them. And we need the grace of Christ because of that. We've seen Jesus take sin seriously. And we learn that he holds marriage in high regard. Uh, I want to remind us this morning that this is the most extensive sermon that Jesus ever gave in the Bible. He gathered his disciples around him, and yet was also teaching against the Pharisees and scribes here. And the key verse for the last several sections and today's is this, verse 20, Jesus says emphatically, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus then proceeds to explain what the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees is and how his righteousness exceeds theirs. In fact, he's showing how the actual intention of the law itself exceeds their so-called righteousness. And I want to remind us of that, that he's not quoting the Old Testament and then saying something different. He's actually showing how he fulfills the Old Testament and how their understanding of the Old Testament was flawed in some way. With that in mind, we're going to dive into the text again, Matthew 5, 33 through 40. So if you've got your copy of, of the Bible, open it up and follow along with me. Matthew 5, 33 through 42. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, 
you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Our two main points or, or sections that we'll look through the text at are these. Number one, the whole truth and nothing but the truth in verses 33 through 37. And point two, a Christian's Bill of Rights, verses 38 through 40. So point number one, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Uh, again, as with the last three sections, Jesus begins with this phrase, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, I find that the easiest way to make sense of these sections is to really look at three things. First, let's look at what's actually written. So what does the Old Testament actually say, um, or, or what's its actual intention? And then second, as a contrast to that, what are the Pharisees saying? What was their false interpretation? And then third, what is Jesus teaching here? which I believe affirms and fulfills what is actually written in the Old Testament. So that's what we're going to do throughout this whole passage this morning. So first, let's look at what the Old Testament says. Uh, while this isn't a, a verbatim quote of one of the Ten Commandments like we had the last two weeks, Jesus seems to be taking a number of passages and kind of summarizing them together. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, this is the third commandment, which says this, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Exodus 20, verse 7. Leviticus 19, verse 12 says this, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. And then Numbers chapter 30, verse 2 says this, If a man vows a vow to the Lord, or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to that that proceeds out of his mouth. Similarly, uh, Deuteronomy 5, verse 11, Deuteronomy 6, 3, and Deuteronomy 23, 21 through 23. They, they all teach very similar commands to those three texts. Uh, the point in each of these, if you're paying close attention, the point in each of those was, that if you vow or swear by the Lord's name or to the Lord, you better keep it. Tell the truth. That, that's what each of those commands is saying. Uh, when Yahweh's name was invoked, his character and his honor was on the line. So don't take the Lord's name in vain. Don't profane the name of your God. Don't break your word. It would kind of be like me going into a coffee shop and ordering a cup of coffee and telling them, just put it on Brian's tab. 
who promises to come and pay for it. If they actually let me do that and I took them up on it, Brian better be good for it, right? He better come and pay for it. His name is on the line. That's what a vow or an oath or a covenant is. It's a solemn promise given to perform a specific duty. I'll say that again. It's a, a solemn promise given to perform a specific duty. So when someone vowed in the name of God, they better be good for it, or, or they were earning God a bad reputation. You see that? Okay, so that's what the, the Old Testament's saying. Vow a vow, and you use the name of the Lord, keep your word. Now, on the other side of that, what were the Pharisees doing with that command? Well, for one, they took those commands very, very narrowly. They believed that these commands, one, were kind of only for legal settings. They believed that these commands were merely about perjuring oneself in the court of law. Secondly, they made all kinds of concessions for what you could swear by and not keep your word or not be as serious about keeping your word. In their line of thinking, if you made a vow or an oath in the name of the Lord, you had to keep it. They understood that correctly. But if you vowed by heaven or earth or Jerusalem or even your own head, it wasn't as serious. You could get away with not keeping your word. In that light, they were making vows even outside of court all over the place. And it was kind of like a coin flip whether they intended to keep their word or not. Again, they thought that, that they were righteous in this because they weren't taking vows in the name of the Lord. And they weren't perjuring themselves in the court of law. And to that, Jesus says, you've missed it. I demand a higher righteousness. You've smeared God's name all over town. When God makes a promise, it's not a coin flip. He keeps his word 100% of the time. So in your actions, scribes and Pharisees, you've lied about who God is. So that's, that's what the, the Pharisees were teaching versus what the, the Old Testament actually says. Now, what's Jesus doing with that? What's Jesus teaching here? Look with me again at verses 33 through 37. He says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So let's start first with what Jesus is not saying. Uh, different people and religious groups throughout Christian history, and even today, have used these verses very narrowly to say this. Christians should never take oaths, period. They shouldn't testify in court or even be sworn into an office or ever make a covenant of any kind. If that's what Jesus is saying, we have a problem. Why? Why is that a problem? Well, first, Jesus would be contradicting God himself. Second, he would be contradicting Moses. Third, Jesus himself testifies under oath in his own trial. 
And fourth, we have Paul, the, the human author of most of the New Testament, violating this command left and right, if that's what Jesus is saying. Now, let me show you what I mean. Jeremiah chapter 12, verses 16 through 17. Jeremiah 12, 16 through 17. God says, and it shall come to pass if they are if, if they will diligently if they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives even as they taught my people to swear by Baal then they shall be built up in the midst of my people but if any nation will not listen then I will utterly pluck up pluck it up and destroy it declares the Lord so here we have God commanding people to swear by his name he says don't swear by the name of Baal, but swear by my name. Further, uh, you can read the Old Testament. You, you can't read the Old Testament without seeing God himself swear oaths or make covenants all over the place with his people. In his case, he's not swearing by something higher than himself as men do, but he's taking solemn steps to assure men of the truth of his statements. Those are called covenants. God shows up to Abraham in Genesis 12, makes promises to him. And then in Genesis 15, he makes a formal covenant with him. He says, I want you, and the text says this, I want you to know for certain Abraham. And he performs this covenant ceremony to ensure his promises. Now look at what the author of Hebrews says about this. Hebrews 6, verses 13 through 19. He's talking about God's covenant with Abraham. Hebrews 6, 13 through 19, it says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise of the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by, by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain." I could show you multiple places throughout the Old Testament where God does this exact same thing, making covenants, taking vows, uttering oaths to his people and his people to him and to each other. I think of 1 Samuel 18, verse 3. It says this, it says, Then Jonathan, this is the, the son of King Saul, then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. God's people throughout the Old Testament make covenants over and over and over again. What about Moses? What, what's Moses teaching? Deuteronomy 10, verses 20 through 21. This is what Moses says. He says, You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. It says, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. Now, again, swearing by the name of Yahweh, not sinful, it's actually commanded here. What about Jesus in his own trial? Matthew 26, verses 63 through 64. 
says, but Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of the God, uh, in the Son of God. In other words, the high priest is putting Jesus under oath here in verse 63. And Jesus doesn't stop the high priest and say, hold on, hold on, hold on. I can't be under oath. This is wrong and sinful for me to take any kind of oath. No. Jesus answers him under oath and speaks nothing but the truth, so help me God. Verse 64, Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So under oath, Jesus speaks confidently and speaks truth. What about Paul? Romans chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul says, But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. How about Philippians chapter 1, verse 8? For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 5 and 10. Paul says, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. And then verse 10, he says, You are witnesses, and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. So Paul has zero issue with taking oaths and calling God to witness uh, the promise or the truth that he's stating. So either Jesus is contradicting Paul and Moses himself and God the Father in heaven here in Matthew 5, or he's saying something else. He's saying something different. I believe he's saying something else. Remember, he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. If if Jesus' teaching is applied so narrowly, again, as some have done, They're doing the exact same thing that Jesus is speaking against here. They've narrowed something that Jesus actually meant to apply to all of life. So, what's Jesus actually saying? Well, he he seems to be speaking against the Pharisees' oaths specifically, and their lack of understanding of God, and their lack of, of truth in speech. Look what Jesus says in verses 34 through 36. Look at those verses closely. His his point seems to be this. You think that you can swear by other things than God, and that God isn't offended when you don't keep your word. False. He's saying, don't take an oath by heaven and think that it's less binding. It it turns out that, that God's sovereign over heaven. It's his throne. Don't take an oath by earth. God's sovereign over that, too. It's his footstool, which is a symbol of kingly authority. Don't take an oath by Jerusalem. Again, God's sovereign over that. It's the city of the king of the universe. Don't even take an oath by your head. God's sovereign over that, too. He makes hair white or black. Not you. God is in control of all of it. So stop thinking that the realm of your oaths limits its seriousness. 
anytime you lie. It's in view of a sovereign God. It's in his presence, whether you invoke his name or not. So anytime you lie, it profanes the name of that sovereign God. Stop it. That's what Jesus is saying. That's his point. It's utter hypocrisy and dishonesty to think that you can invoke God's name and be truthful and invoke something else and not be truthful. Simply tell the truth wherever you are. Look at how Jesus fleshes this out, even in more detail. In Matthew 23, verses 16 through 24, Matthew 23, verses 16 through 24, Jesus says this. He says, Woe to you. Again, he's speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that is made to the gold sacred? And if you say, uh, and you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So, whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. In Matthew 5, Jesus is not condemning oaths altogether, but instead their false use of oaths. But this wasn't just a promise or a problem for, for the Pharisees of Jesus's day. I want to suggest that it's a problem for us too. Recently, I've been listening to a couple of podcasts, um, both on Watergate and then the Clinton scandals. Fascinating stuff. Well, two things are amazing to me as I've listened to those. Number one, People tend to take it a lot, a lot more serious when they find out they're under oath. It's crazy how many of the witnesses that were interviewed in both of those those things that that said one thing to newspapers or reporters, and then they changed their tune when they were under oath. They knew that being under oath meant something. Second, it's amazing that there are people, in this case, the, the highest ranking person in America, who are even so brazen as to lie under oath. Jesus' issue here in Matthew 5 isn't with taking oaths. His issue is with with thinking that you don't have to be truthful when you're not under oath. You can't divide life up into neat little compartments, some of which are exempt from truthfulness and others which are not. The truth is important in every single situation. Oaths are serious matters. Most people understand this. They either tarnish or speak truth about God's name. But Jesus is calling us to be truthful in all of life. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. Well, here at Santa Cruz Baptist, we believe in the use of a church covenant. We take that seriously and follow in the footsteps of the people of God throughout all ages. 
we make a solemn promise with the help of the Spirit to fulfill certain duties to each other and to God. We believe that this is good and right, that it's not violating Matthew 5. But we also believe we're called to tell the truth outside of that covenant. We believe we're to live lives of truthfulness. So every time our mouths open, we're either faithful or unreliable. And as God's representatives here on earth, we reflect his character, either faithfully or unreliably. As Christians, we tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help us God. But Jesus isn't done here. Point number two, a Christian's Bill of Rights. He continues on in verses 38 through 42, and he says this. So he's just said we need to tell the truth in all of life. He continues on. He says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Same process as before. What does the Old Testament say, or what's its intention? What were the Pharisees teaching? And what is Jesus teaching? So first, what does the Old Testament say? In Deuteronomy 19.21, we see the law of Moses laying out the principle of life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now, why was that? Why did, did God give that law in Deuteronomy 19.21? Why did that law need to be put in there for the first place? Well, similar to last week with Deuteronomy 24 and the laws on divorce, this law was given because of sin. As is the case now, our sinful hearts always want to overreact, right? We see this all the time in our kids. Why did you hit your brother? Well, he took my coloring page. The punishment, so to speak, doesn't often fit the crime. Well, in Moses' day, the stakes were raised. A man would get his tooth knocked out and would respond by killing the other guy. The law came to restrain the amount of vengeance that was even allowable. And to be clear, this all happened in the court of law, formally. If, if you were violated, you could go to the judge, and the maximum sentence allowable was one for one. A judge would never be allowed to penalize you at 100 to 1 ratio, or even a two-to-one ratio. It was one-to-one. One. But even that was a maximum penalty that wasn't always exacted. The law came to kind of restrain vigilante vengeance, and therefore sin. It was used to limit and even restrain retaliation. But the Pharisees had taken that law to actually require vengeance, to require retaliation. They were distorting the original intention of the law. They were demanding the full extent of their rights, so to speak, under the law. They were demanding what they were entitled to. If they were offended, they were going to get their pound of flesh. Well, what does Jesus say to that? Verse 39, he says, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. 
But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other also. This is a key principle that's going to help us understand the rest of the verses. Uh, This word resist in verse 39, it's an explicitly legal term. And it can even be translated to take to court or give testimony against. First, this passage in verse is not, hear me clearly, this passage in verse is not about just war theory. I'm not going to argue on either side of that this morning because that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Here's what the key principle is. As Christians, don't stand on your legal rights and bleed others for all they're worth. As Sinclair Ferguson says it, don't make your rights the basis for your relationship with others. I'll say that again. Don't make your rights the basis for your relationship with others. uh, We are a country and a people who are obsessed with rights. And I'm not saying that those rights aren't good. They are. But what Jesus is advocating here is that sometimes the most godly thing we can do is lay down our rights out of love for the relationship. That's exactly what Jesus himself did. And to illustrate that principle, Jesus gives four notable examples here in the text. Example number one, he says, If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Why all the detail there? What about the left cheek, Jesus? Well, Jesus uses this imagery because for a right-handed person, slapping someone on the right cheek would have been with the back of the hand. Think about that. This was a massively insulting thing to do. You've seen this kind of thing in old Western movies, right? When you wanted to challenge someone to a life-or-death duel, you slapped them in the face. That's when it meant business. In Jesus' time... It was no different. To to backhand slap a man in the face was a grave offense. It it was insulting beyond measure. So we're not talking about a violent crime here. We're talking about a gross insult. The fine for such an insult actually exceeded an average man's annual wages. And the only recourse for this was to take them to court. In today's terms, think of libel or even character defamation. Jesus says, turn to him the other also. So is he saying that that a Christian should willfully put him or herself in the path of further suffering? No. Again, he's using a picture here to teach a principle. He's saying to stand on your rights and to try to have your dignity affirmed isn't the Christian response to insult. When we're insulted and we stand on our rights, we're saying, I need legal recourse because my reputation is not secure in God. Jesus' point here is, your reputation is secure with God. It's secure because you're his child. Let your response to insult be gracious. Just as your heavenly Father's response to your insult of sin is gracious. Consider this. Will anyone ever be won to the gospel by you retaliating and standing on your rights? No, they won't. Because we serve a king who didn't retaliate. Instead, he went to the cross willingly for us. 
Praise God that Jesus didn't stand upon his rights as the perfect Son of God. Instead, he bore the punishment that I deserve. He was innocent and yet went to the cross as a curse. That's my only hope in life and in death. Second illustration. So first illustration is one of insult with a slap. Second illustration, verse 40. He says, And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Same exact principle here. Think of kind of a tunic as a shirt and a cloak as a heavy jacket. A man's cloak or outer coat was one of his most valuable possessions during Jesus' day. While he might own several tunics or shirts, he would only have one cloak. In fact, if it were taken as a financial pledge, it actually had to be returned to the man by nightfall. Check this out. Exodus 22, verses 26 through 27. Exodus 22, verses 26 through 27. It says, If you ever take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? If he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. So you see what Jesus is doing here in Matthew 5. He's saying, no one has the right to sue you for your cloak. They can sue you for your tunic, but your rights protect you from losing your cloak. Jesus isn't advocating here that a Christian be left naked. His point is the same as before. He's saying, they have the right to sue for your tunic, but not your cloak. But be willing to forego your rights. Where sin abounds, grace should abound much more. That's a reflection of Christ in us. Third illustration, verse 41. He says, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. This was actually a reference to a Roman law or a Roman rule. Roman armies, which at the time occupied Palestine, they had the right to force people to assist them. Think about Simon in Mark 15, 21. Jesus is being crucified. He's carrying the cross up the hill. And it says, And they compelled the passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in front of, uh, from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus. They compelled him to carry the cross. So legally, a Roman soldier could require you or force you to walk a thousand paces, usually carrying some type of equipment for them. They had the right to do that. And this was absolutely humiliating for Jews. It was a constant reminder to them that they were under subjugation and under Roman rule. To that, Jesus says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Roman soldier, he doesn't have the right to make you go two. He has the right to make you go one. But go two. Do it voluntarily. You belong to another king whose values and principles are so much higher than the Caesars. A Christian does the unexpected and the unrequired out of love, not out of reverence for their rights. You see the pattern here. Uh, the first three illustrations, they, they deal with something that's done to you. Now, the fourth illustration, verse 42. He says, give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Again, for, for Jesus' disciples, giving 
wasn't a legal duty. It was not a legal duty. There was no law that said they had to give to someone who begged. And I just want to be clear, what Jesus had in mind here was not necessarily a professional beggar. He seems to have in mind a genuine need, not someone begging for money or or drugs or, or worse. Second, I love this quote from Augustine. He says this, he says, The text says, give to everyone that asks, not give everything to him that asks. As Christians, we're called to be good stewards of what God has given us. But we're also called to radical generosity. We're called to realize that everything we have has been given to us by God. He owns it all, and he desires for us to be a vessel of his mercy for others. Uh, look at what John says in 1 John 3, 17. 1 John 3, 17, he says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Again, God's character is on the line in how we give. Are we generous and merciful and gracious? Or are we stingy, demanding that what's ours is ours? What does that say about God, who we're meant to reflect? At the end of the day, here's Jesus' point in all of these illustrations. Be willing to forego your rights for the purpose of displaying Christ to others. Be willing to forgo your rights to display Christ to others. You might never be slapped in the face. You may never be sued for your clothes. You may never be conscripted into Roman military service for a mile. But Jesus is using these as illustrations or principles. How do you handle your reputation, your possessions, your time and energy? Do you trust God with them? Do you reflect God in them? When you're insulted, do you respond in kind? Or do you absorb it, standing on your reputation as a child of God? Do you stand on the right to all of your possessions to only use them for yourself, your house, your car? Or are you willing to be open-handed, leveraging them for the kingdom? And if you're at work and someone asks you to go get coffee and you're really busy, do you do it cheerfully and bring them back a scone too? Jesus' principle is that we display his character in every part of life. We tell the truth. We humble ourselves. We live open-handedly. We're gracious and merciful. That's who Jesus is. That's who we're called to be. If you're a Christian and you're sitting there and you're saying, man, that sounds hard. It is. In fact, it's impossible without the Spirit graciously working through us. It's only Christ in you that displays Christ through you. This takes an extreme, an extreme amount of trust in God, who alone can truly bring you justice. So the question here is, do you trust him? If you're here and you're not a Christian, all of this can sound quite burdensome. Don't lie, give up your rights. Why do Christians do this? 
I want to read for you once more the passage that we read earlier out of 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24. It says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. All of us, and I do mean all of us, have broken the third commandment in bearing false witness and thus taking the Lord's name in vain. We've retaliated instead of trusting in God. We've demanded our rights when Jesus did not demand his. For those offenses and so many more against a just and holy God, we deserve death. But Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The Bible tells us that when we turn from sin and trust in Jesus, that we'll be forgiven, healed, rescued, saved. In light of that, God calls all Christians to live a life of response, to reflect his character and his good news to those around us. Hear this loud and clear. We don't obey so that God will love us. We obey because God loves us. If you've never heard that good news and you've never responded to it, we invite you to do that right now. In every way that you and I have failed, Jesus succeeded. Repent and believe in him. You'll be forgiven. You'll be made spiritually alive. Let's pray.